0: You have your Bible with you today. We're going to be in the first or in the, the first letter to the Corinthian church in the third chapter. So you can go ahead and open up to there. We're picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, we're continuing on with these metaphors for church formation that Pastor Nick introduced us to last Sunday. We'll be in the third chapter. This morning of First Corinthians. So last Sunday we saw that the church was growing as a field. And you had workers in the church. You had Paul and Apollos. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but it was God alone who gave the growth. And it is in fact God's church that we are discussing. And so the growth depends upon his sovereign will, not ultimately upon the the works, the actions of the, the people in the church. But In God's glorious plan to unite a people to Himself through the work of the Son, applied by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the the means by which He does that, the method by which He grows the church, He accomplishes this through people. Through the apostles, through the prophets, through the evangelists, the shepherds, and, and teachers especially, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, but also through the church as a whole, since we have all been made as true believers a royal priesthood who proclaims the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2, 9. So God ordains or he decrees the end, and he also ordains and decrees the means by which he accomplishes this act. And in this case, we're speaking of the growth of the church. So even though people are involved in the process, what Pastor Nick said last week is absolutely correct. The church is not built by the efforts of man. It is built by the sovereign direction of God. Now, we have a lot to cover this morning, but I hope that what we'll see as we consider the text this this morning, in the church as a specific kind of building, is that the church is founded upon Christ and Him crucified and is also built through that knowledge of Christ and Him crucified. And so trying to build it any other way is going to create some sort of deformed monster, a, a counterfeit that will not pass the test on the day of judgment and may it even and it may even carry with it eternal consequences for the one who built in error. So some very serious and sobering things for us to be considering this morning. So let's read the passage and then we'll pray before we study his word together. So this is the word of the Lord beginning at verse 10 in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. That ends the reading of God's holy, sufficient, inspired word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, how it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and we ask this morning that you would discern us through your word, that you would soften our hearts and grant to us belief and a greater trust in you. Please be glorified this morning. Help us, Lord, to rejoice for your faithful provision in our life and for You're giving to us of your Spirit, and Spirit, we ask that you would convict us where appropriate, and that you would guide us into all truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you're on your note sheet there, what we're talking about now is the changing of the metaphor, but the continuing of the point that Paul was making. So you might notice there was an abrupt change that the Apostle makes in verse 9. We talked about that last week. Uh, he, He does that to bring us to this new metaphor. He tells the saints that they are God's field, and then he just also says God's building. And it makes it very clear that he's talking about the same thing. These terms, for the sake of his argument here, are interchangeable. We're addressing the same problem this morning as we addressed in the text last week as well, just from a slightly nuanced perspective today. And remember what he's arguing at about this point. There is division in the church. Some are saying that they are of Apollo. Some are saying that they're of Paul. Others are saying that they are of Peter. And someone has sowed into the field, as it were, these seeds of division. Someone is building with improper building materials, if we're to further along the metaphor. And there is jealousy and strife among them, verse 3 of this chapter. They are acting fleshly, we read, acting as if they don't have the Spirit dwelling in them. They are acting as if they are the natural man and not the spiritual man of Romans 8. And so in this error, they're making the church into something that God did not call it to be. And make no mistake, friends, that the church is God's. He and he alone has the right and the authority to tell us what it is and how it is that it grows. So listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the church and the saints, about the church, to the saints in Ephesus. It's just a few chapters over. You could turn to it very easily. This is Ephesians chapter 2, and it's really, it's almost a parallel passage to what we have being discussed here this morning in, in the letter to the Corinthians, except for it just doesn't mention the warnings in it. But listen to how Paul uh, defines the church. This is Ephesians 2, 19-22. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so that, is, that is the church. That, that is her description. It's a group of people who are not strangers and aliens to God and His covenant promises. We're united in specific doctrinal truth. We're a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, a, a temple even, is what he calls us here in Ephesians and also in 1 Corinthians. And so like Apollos and like Paul, we too build by God's grace, and we are commissioned to work in the church, but we must do so in biblical truth. We have to do it with gospel fidelity, and that's it's lacking in some of those who are building here in the church in Corinth. And By no means, friends, is this just some first century problem. Churches today make must take care in how we build, verse 10. Uh, we can be guilty of the same kind of error that the saints in Corinth were guilty of. And so the warnings that we will soon look into here, we, we need to take them to heart ourselves. We need to be thinking of this as First Family Church. How is the church growing here? How is the church being built here? How is it that we are working here? Be sure, you know, we're not talking about numbers this morning. The, the sort of growth in view in our passage is not numerical, Of course you know we would like to see our community reached we would love to see new people baptized we would love to see saints added through covenant membership here to the body here and it is god himself who who does that ultimately right he is the one who adds souls to the church like we read in acts chapter two he added three thousand souls to the church in that day that's all part of growth certainly but what we're talking about here primarily with this growth in view is our individual spiritual lives. Uh, which, which of course, you know, God is involved in that as well. Our growth in Christ, our Christ-likeness, our Christian character is being thought of here. Sanctification, in other words. That's what's in view. And will will we be spiritual people or people of the flesh, as Paul outlined at the beginning of this chapter, of chapter three? So when our text speaks about being about building on the foundation, it's not talking about adding new people to the church, but it's speaking about the growth of the Christian. It's speaking about our own spiritual growth, our sanctification. Is it being done with materials that will last and are useful, or will it, uh, or is it being built with materials that will ultimately be burnt up, that will be, that will burn in the fire, as it were? In other words, that which is built without care doesn't actually build at all. It confuses, it conce- or it deceives, and it doesn't sanctify. So let's be clear about this term, sanctification. And I find it helpful to think of it in light of another doctrine that it must be associated with or biblical sanctif- sanctification can't happen at all. And we'll see these things in the text as well, but since we're concerned with the metaphor of building this morning, it's good, I think, that we take a look um, at what we might call the blueprints before any building takes place. So no strong building can be constructed if the blueprints aren't known. So then, we have sanctification, and it must be associated with justification, or there will be no sanctification at all. All right, Sanctification must be associated with justification, or there can't be any sanctification. So what is justification, though? What is this Christian doctrine of justification? What does it mean to be justified? Quite simply, it means to be declared righteous. It means to be declared good by God's standard of goodness. It's not, okay, it is not an infused in us righteousness. In other words, for those of us here this morning who are justified by God, we, are, we have not become actually righteous. Because remember, this righteousness is based on God's standard and is, in, and is any of us perfect at this point. Are you willing to say that you are perfect and that you never sin? I'm not willing to say that. But perfection is God's standard. So we're not actually righteous in and of ourselves, nor do we contribute to our righteous standing with our works before the Lord. That's the Roman Catholic error concerning justification, actually. And it's damning. The idea that you are infused with this righteousness and you become actually righteous, and then with your righteousness, you contribute to the righteous standing you have. That's the Roman Catholic error, and that is wrong. wrong that is not what the scripture teaches. Uh, To be justified does not mean that Jesus's righteousness is infused with us, making us actually righteous and then culpable for for maintaining that position. To be justified, that is to be declared righteous, is to have Jesus's righteousness accredited to you. It's accredited to your account in a legal sense. It's imputed to us, not infused in us. In other words, We are declared righteous based upon Jesus' righteous life and that alone. Nothing else. Just Jesus. His works, not ours. And we evidence that we have been justified by God through Christ's righteousness, by our faith in Christ. So the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through God through our faith? No, no. Not through our faith, through Jesus Christ. It's Him, what He has done. We are declared righteous based upon what Jesus did for us, and we receive that in faith, which God also supplies for us, Ephesians 2, so that we properly say we are justified by faith alone, not on our works in addition, to our, in addition to faith. And this justification, friends, it cannot be undone. It is forever once it is applied to the individual. The very moment you were born again and you received Christ in faith, you were perfectly justified. You were declared righteous perfectly. You're not any more justified now, even if that happened you know, decades ago. You're not any more justified now than you were at that very moment. And why is that? Because Christ himself is the standard of that righteousness, and he does not change. You can't be unjustified because that would mean there's a problem with Christ's righteousness. So Paul says in in Romans 8.30, And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if you have been justified, you will certainly be glorified. That's it. It's a great joy and encouragement to our souls, isn't it, church? It it builds assurance in us because it removes all all self-confidence to understand justification rightly and develops in us a, a Christ confidence for our salvation. If your confidence in your, is in yourself, I mean, how weak and how frail that is. But, but if it's in Christ alone, what a joy. He's, he's unmovable. He is our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ alone. The Lord is my salvation. Those are more than just titles of the hymns that we sang this morning. Those are linchpins of our faith justification is accredited to us based upon the righteousness of christ this justification in major part is what we're talking about in our text when we mention this foundation Uh, more on that in a moment but we also need to because we also need to consider the kind of growth so now as i was saying sanctification is closely related to justification but it's 100 percent different you can't be sanctified without being first justified. To think of sanctification simply, we can say that it means to be set apart, uh, to be marked as holy. That would be definitive sanctification. We would understand that as a definitive way of sa- of thinking about sanctification. It's what the Apostle Paul gets to in the sixth chapter of this letter, in verse 11, where it says, there at the end, it says, Well, I'll read the whole whole verse. He says, "...and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God." So sanctification in that sense is definitive. It is God setting a person apart through justification. But there's also a way in which we think of sanctification as a process, as something that we grow in, as something that, that changes over time. It grows, and that is the sort of work and growth that is being described in our text this morning. John Murray, in his classic work, uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says this. He says, Indeed, the more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God the deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of his love to God, the more persistent his yearning for the attainment of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, the more conscious will he be of the gravity of the sin that remains, and the more poignant will he be of his detestation of it. Was this not the effect in all the people of God as they came into closer proximity to the revelation of God's holiness? So that's a long, but I think it's a good definition of sanctification. A Christian is a saved person who is being saved, who will be saved, and along that process, and along time over that process, is growing in Christ. And listen, we are always growing in one direction or the other. Now sometimes sanctification can feel like two steps backwards and one step forward. It, it can be messy, but God is faithful. And Further, you know, our sanctification, we need to understand it as spiritual warfare. The 13th chapter of the 1689 London Baptist Confession um, speaks about sanctification, and it says this in the third article. It says, In this war, meaning the Christian life that we have with our sanctification, our growth in it, it says, The remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes, so the saint grows in grace perfecting holiness in the fear of God, they pursue a heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as head and king has given to them in his word. So, sanctification does not come easy, church. Remaining corruption sometimes greatly prevails in our lives. But what is built in our lives will either help or hinder this process of sanctification. And so we have to take care how we build. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. We need to be aware of what is being built. Uh, This is what we're looking at in our text this morning, and we'll consider how it is that someone builds in just a moment. For now, let's look back at our text this morning. Let's look at verse 10. There are a lot of things going on here in this one verse. I want us to see five of them. First off, we see that the Apostle Paul himself has a role in building, doesn't he? Just like in the previous metaphor, we read that Paul planted, he did an early work in the lives of the church there, In the second metaphor, this metaphor for this morning, he continues with that same thought, but now he says he laid the foundation. Rather than planting, he says he laid a foundation. And I think we all know how important a foundation is. If the foundation goes, there goes the structure, right? Uh, Think of the tower in Pisa. After standing upright for five years, the unfit foundation gave way, and now it's a tourist site, right? Now, Now you can go and see this leaning tower there. Even better, think of Christ's words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount he talks about two houses that are built on two different foundations. And a storm hits the houses and one is able to survive the storm and the other one is destroyed. And the reason being because of the different foundations they were built on. The house built on the sand, which was the bad foundation, it doesn't last. But the house built on the rock weathered the storm. And in this parable in Matthew 7, what is the rock? It's faithfulness to christ is what it is and we'll we'll save that for talking about that when we get to verse 11 but there's more to notice here in this verse so the foundation is what will be built upon so it's the it's the first layer it's it's important cannot overlook the importance of a right foundation and the building grows up from there and so paul says he laid the foundation secondly notice how he did this work this is a very important, this is, this is very important because he's calling us into, he's calling into work the question of those who have built, and he's also calling us to be faithful builders. He's warning us that we must take this work very seriously because everyone's work will be tested. And Paul's telling us that his work will pass the test. There's no judgment on his work. Look down at verse 15. There at verse 15 says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That's that's a tough verse, and there's a lot of confusion about it. We'll get there. But note what Paul is saying. He's saying his work is going to pass the test. He did it as a skilled master builder. The word skilled there is the Greek word for wisdom, for wise. So in other words, Paul is a wise master builder. He's a wise man who builds with skill. Not with the wisdom of the world, but with the wisdom given to him through Christ. He's been talking about this wisdom in the previous two chapters, right? Paul is build, he's building up his argument. He's, he's built correctly. Again, verse 11, we'll get into that detail, but we mustn't assume that Paul is boasting here at this point either. He's not saying like, oh, look how great I am. Look how great of a skilled master builder I am. His boast is in the Lord. Remember chapter 1, verse 30. And that's what he's, he does here, actually, in saying what he said before this. It's the next point, actually, thirdly. He's a skilled or wise master builder because of the grace of God given to him. According to the grace of God given to him, he built, he laid the foundation. No grace from God, in other words, no wise building. Paul's not boasting in himself to the Corinthians. And think of how crazy it would be for him to do so even. Uh, there, was a, there was an of Paul faction, right? Right? So he's not trying to puff up his own followers or whatever. He's trying to do away with all that. He did this building by the grace of God. He's not pouring into the foundation of the of Paul group. Now, we often think of grace in association with our salvation, don't we? Uh, We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Grace is unmerited favor. It is getting what we don't deserve. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. And we typically and appropriately think of grace with our being saved. And, and rightly so, because we are sinners not worthy of salvation. But it's also much, much more than that. It is impossible for us to overstate the importance of grace in our lives, even after our salvation. Anything we rightly do for Christ, we do it by the grace of God. There's no room for us to boast. It is all by the grace of God that was given to us. Again, grace permeates all of what Paul does. And if we're going to think rightly and honor the Lord in our hearts, we must acknowledge this as well. If we're going to work and build rightly in the church, it will be, as Paul has said, according to the grace that God gives us. It's like the hymn we sing, Yet not I, but Christ in me. Listen, you know, if we do not have the same attitude that Paul has, then we need to repent and think rightly about our service to the Lord. We are in sin if we believe we are working for God out of the well of our own strength. If we don't have the attitude that Paul reveals in 1 Corinthians 15, maybe repent this morning and seek to work out of the well of God's grace. Look at at chapter 15, just a couple pages over. Verse 9 to 10. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now granted, none of us are apostles, and we, to my knowledge, none of us per- persecuted the church like he did before his conversion, but in some way we were all at enmity with the Lord before our salvation, and certainly we probably were not nice to other Christians. I, I know that I was not nice to Christians before I, was, before I became one. But then he says in verse 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So, you see the relationship between grace and working there, don't you? We work. We work by grace. But it's not us. It is the grace of God in us. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. I believe we're singing that hymn at the close of our service today. Fourthly, Paul's not the only one at work, is he? Someone else is building upon it. Now, that's what we read here in verse 10. Upon what? The foundation that Paul has laid. Now, context would have us to think that Apollos is perhaps being referenced here. Remember, Paul planted an Apollos watered from the first metaphor. And Apollos did build upon that foundation that Paul laid. But that would not be what Paul is speaking of at this point. If Apollos was who he was thinking of, we would be right to think that he just simply would have said Apollos that he would have said that, since he has no problem saying that about Apollos in the first three chapters. Apollos faithfully built upon the work that Paul had done. But Apollos built faithfully, that's the key. And the apostle is now making time in this metaphor to address the dangers of improper building, uh, of sinful building. So it's very obvious that Paul has in mind those teachers in the church who are driving the division between the members here in this metaphor. Those pastors and teachers that came after him and who came after Apollos, and the warning that he gives to them is, is, is clearly to them and to anyone who builds improperly. Look at the start of verse 12. If, any, if anyone builds. Now, that also tells us that the primary context of the coming verses about how someone builds in verses 12 through 17 is actually then you know, about those who teach, Right? It's mostly or primarily this passage is a warning to pastors, to teachers. It's about elders and evangelists and missionaries. The focus isn't on the laity of the churches. It's on those who teach the laity. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, our Lord, says that not many of you should become teachers, for you will be judged more strictly. That makes perfect sense in light of these passages, doesn't it? But there is certainly a sense in which we must all take care of how we build upon the foundation. I mean, whose theology books are you buying? Who are you watching on TV, on the Internet? Whose theological statements are you ingesting on social media? In all those cases, you are the one seeking them out. They aren't over you as your pastor or elder or teacher in the local church, but you're submitting yourself to their teaching, allowing them to build upon you, And then you run the danger of possibly teaching someone else those wrong things that you may have been taught. And so even though the warning that Paul is issuing here is primarily for pastors, everyone needs to be aware of the warning as well for our own individual lives. And if we had more time, actually, I would would love to talk about the responsibility of the local church congregation that, that the local church has to guard against anyone who would build improperly. Our text in verse 16 and 17 informs us that the building that we're actually talking about is in fact a temple, and that, was, that should cause us to even think of the Garden of Eden because that was, a, that was in a sense a temple in which Adam was supposed to tend and teach and protect. And at that point, Adam failed to care for the temple because when someone came into it teaching wrong things, he failed to expel that liar, that deceiver, the serpent, who we know is Satan so that same responsibility today is held to local churches through the church discipline process. So we're talking about temple and therefore you know, church purity here in our passage. In the New Covenant, the people of God themselves are the temple, and we'll deal with some of this, but, but I digress. We don't have time to fully flesh the nature of church discipline and the responsibility of the whole local church in doing it out, but that's certainly part of what is happening here in our text. The fifth and final thing to notice in verse 10 is that Paul instructs us to take care how we build upon the foundation. How we build, how the church has formation matters, doesn't it? That's been the point of these two metaphors. The field or the the garden and now the building, the temple. Now he's going to explain what that is in figurative detail for us in this metaphor in verse 12, so we'll define it more specifically then when we get there. But there's another point to notice at this junction. We are dealing with people who are building upon the foundation that Paul has laid. That's a proper foundation, isn't it? That's the correct foundation. The foundation itself will be defined for us in just a moment, but that tells us that we're not dealing with people here who are building on the wrong thing in these matters, not through verse 15 at least. That changes in 16 and 17. So then, for most of our text this morning, we are not dealing with things that constitute as rank heresy over the central tenets of the faith. We're dealing with a work that will be burned up, and the teacher will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, verse 15. So keep that in mind. This isn't a, a salvific issue in these earlier verses as we, as we move through these through the rest of these passages. If you're following along your note sheet, then what I want to look at now is this foundation. What is this foundation of the temple that the Apostle Paul is speaking of? And remember, we're, we're talking about people here, not actual building like we are in this morning. What is this foundation that he has laid as a skilled builder? He tells us in verse 11 plainly, the foundation of the church, the foundation of this temple in which God's Spirit dwells is Jesus Christ. When it comes to the church, when it comes to the people of God, look at verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid. If we're speaking of people who are not part of the church, sure, there's a different foundation than at that point. Really, properly speaking, it would be Adam. The first man they are ephesians 2 by nature children of wrath they're not part of the church but for the church jesus christ is the only foundation he's the cornerstone he's the rock of ages he's the son of god the son of man there is none like him and paul's not saying that he designed this foundation when he says that he laid it who did design the foundation by the way god did yahweh did the church and its growth is the plan of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to fully develop this this morning, so I'm going to assign some research for those of you who are interested. Something for you to look up. If you own a systematic theology book, and I hope you all do, maybe that should be something that we start in our ch- our church, a, a good systematic theology book in every home. That would be a good thing to have. But if you don't have one of those, you could simply Google this. Google the Covenant of Redemption. And then we'll talk about it more fully at some point later if you wanted to discuss it, okay? But that is God's plan to build the church. God is the one who most certainly designed the church from the foundation up. And by God's perfect plan, Jesus is the only foundation that there is. And when it comes to the Christian faith, Paul is not trying to say that he designed it. He only laid it down. And how does one do that? How does one lay down a proper foundation, which is Jesus Christ, so that someone else in the church may build upon it? The apostle tells us himself in his letter to the Romans. He's explaining to them them the specifics of his call to the Gentiles and why it is that he hasn't been able to come see them, even though he desires to. And so in chapter 15, verse 20, he says, "And, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So as, as he is the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul spent most of his time laying the foundation by preaching the gospel to people who had never heard it, rather than edifying and serving in already existing churches. Did he build on the foundation that he had laid? Well, of course he did. Certainly he did. And these letters are testimony to that, aren't they? That he's following back up with them and 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 talking to them about how their growth is going and what problems they're having. But it's clear. The foundation is laid through the preaching of the gospel. Remember what Paul said about his coming to Corinth when they yet didn't know Christ and there was no church here. Remember what he said his goal was or what he determined to know, what he decided to know. He said that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was laying the foundation. That's what he was doing. And this is the way it must be done, church. It's the only way a Christian can exist, let alone the church, which is made up of Christians. The preaching of Christ and Him crucified. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. And so I ask you, friends is Christ your foundation? Because if you're attempting to build on anything else, it will not last. Remember the justification that I spoke of earlier. Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? His righteousness and no other. Because there is no other. Listen, if your foundation isn't Christ and Him crucified for your sins and then risen for your justification, no building upon it will matter on the last day. You can't hang good a live fruit, or excuse me, you can't you can't add good works to a a dead body and then expect that body to survive. Just like if you had a tree in your in your garden, and the tree died, you can't put good fruit on that tree and hope the tree will come back to life. It doesn't work that way. If the foundation is wrong, no, no building upon it will matter. And the missionary C. T. Studd said it well. Only what is done for Christ will last. So be reconciled through Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way. There is no other foundation for the church. And you can be reconciled to Christ today. That that is the offer in the gospel. Now then, speaking of what C.T. Studd said, Only what what is done for Christ will last. We turn our attention to verses 12 through 17. We know what we're building on, but what are we building with? We need to start thinking towards that end now. Notice how in verse twelve he lists uh, different construction materials that we might select for use, either gold, silver, precious stones, hay, or wood, hay, and stubble. They're listed in decreasing value and increasing flammability. And Paul's exhortation is: There's a fire coming. Build so that what you build will last. Make sure you build so that it lasts. Now, why is that so important? I mean, surely. As long as you have Jesus, you're good, right? As long as your life is resting on Christ and as a sure foundation, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter how you build, does it? Well, take a look at verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest. For the day, speaking about the day of judgment, that day when Christ returns to usher in the eternal age, for when the day comes, He will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So at the final judgment, our lives will fall under the scrutiny, the white-hot, combustible scrutiny of the Lord himself. And all of our work for Jesus will be put to the test and the criterion for it is not how much we did. Don't don't make that mistake. This, This passage has unfortunately been used to terrorize the conscience of many Christians. And people twist it to make it seem as if the Bible is instructing us that you just need to do everything. You need to, to do more things for Christ. You need to keep on doing and keep on doing on so that these things that burn up at the end, it won't matter because you've done so much. Well, you know, get busy, do more. That's not what this passage is saying. That's not what I'm telling you this morning. It's not about how much you do. It's about how you do what you do. It's not volume. It's not busyness. It's quality. He says, Let each one take care how he builds. Paul says in verse 10, that to take care how you build, because the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Verse 13. Not how much, simply how. Not what volume, but what sort of work. That's the test. So, what Paul is doing here then is warning disciples of all kinds warning pastors and teachers and missionaries and Sunday school teachers, whoever teaches, that there are dangerous consequences for building the church with materials that are not in step with the greatness of Christ, the foundation. And we're looking at consequences of building then. And what are the three? And there are three categories that I want to approach this from in verses 12 through 17. So if you're following along on your outline, the first thing I want to consider is the health of God's temple. Uh, the, The first consequence concerns the damage that will be done to the health of the church as a whole, the health of the, a local church congregation. And remember, we're still talking about a church that is properly called a church. It has Christ as its foundation. So we read in, in verses 12 and 13, he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work will become manifest for the day of judgment will close it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. So then, what are these building materials? That's what we need to know, right? And at first glance, it seems a bit ironic, doesn't it? I mean, wood, hay, stubble, these would be common building materials. The former gold, silver, and precious stones wouldn't really be what is used to construct a building. You would adorn a building with those things, but not actually build with them. But we aren't talking about an actual building here, right? Nor are we talking about actual metals and stones and other physical material. Paul's wanting us to understand that what we build with will have to stand up to a test. The test being described as fire, not as an eternal judgment here, but a test, a verdict on how we built. It will either last and pass the test, or it will be, or it will fail and be discarded. So I know I haven't said it yet, but I think it's more than obvious as to what the materials are. And if you think about it, we're talking about a warning to those who teach. Therefore, these materials listed here in verse 12 are representative of the content of our teaching. That's what they represent, the content of our teaching. That would mean very clearly, without a doubt, that these passages are a warning for the church to maintain sound doctrine and for Christians to avoid being conformed to the pattern of this age. Christians need to reject the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age, the the very things that are causing division in the Corinthian church and the very thing that they were not doing, uh, rejecting those things. And to instead, we as a church need to cling to sound doctrine. We need to depend upon the wisdom imparted to us by the Spirit who lives in us. Sound doctrine is most certainly represented by the gold, silver, and precious jewels mentioned. They will stand the fire. They, They will pass the test. That is, sound doctrine passes the test. Building a church with these will cause the church to be healthy. It will be a church that is a city on a hill. It will look different than the world. Its cares will be different than the world. It's not that it will be free from sin, of course not, but what we teach matters. How we deal with sin in the church matters. James Boyce, who went to be home with, the, with his Lord a little over 20 years ago, said this, so around the, I think it was, he said this 20, about 20 years before he went to the Lord. Even So this was around 1980 when he said this. He says, we need specific, powerful teaching about the scriptures, the covenants, grace, the law of God, and other doctrines. We do not hear preaching on these foundational truths very much today. This is a primary and debilitating weakness of the church. He was right back then. And it's still the same need that we have today. How many churches today are preaching social is- issues and election matters, and how many churches have taken their eyes off of sound doctrine and, and eyes off of the Savior? He's, James Boyce was simply saying the same things that the Apostle Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. When the church departs from sound doctrine, from teaching about sin, from teaching about Christ and Him crucified, from making clear distinctions between law and gospel, we will suffer loss. By the grace of God. may that never be first family church. We need to be holding each other accountable and, and lovingly exhorting each other to sound doctrine. We should labor to build the church, to build into the church doctrines and attitudes and, and behaviors that will come forth from the fire of testing, like gold and silver and precious jewels, all to the glory of Christ. We need to be a doctrinal church. Otherwise, we fall. That's what he's saying. And right doctrine. Secondly, the consequence that we want to consider is the builders' loss of rewards. Uh, Teaching error carries with it consequence for the individual who does so. Verse fourteen and fifteen. If the work, if the work which anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, in other words, it is possible to be a Christian, a true Christian, and to be a harmful teacher in the church. Still a Christian, but a harmful teacher. Christians can have much doctrine wrong, they can have blind spots. We can have blind spots. We all do. We were all this way, certainly, when we were new believers, of course and then we can impart this wood hay and stubble or and stubble to others in our christian service only to see it go up in smoke on the last day. And none of us will escape this this chastisement I think for none of us is a perfect teacher 100% of the time. And so Paul teaches that God will judge christian workers and then reward them or burn up their work based on their avoidance of human wisdom and worldly wisdom and adherence to the wisdom of the cross. And sound doctrine as they go about their work, either reward or your reward, or it will be burnt up. But oh, how vigilant should that make us to know our Bible? How, to, how vigilant it should make us to know our Bible well and live it well? We don't want to simply relax, knowing that we'll ultimately be saved regardless, right? We don't want to suffer loss, do we? Think of the harm that is done to the one who learns wrongly. Like Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best or or study to show yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And, And simply put, there will be shame on that day for those who handle the word without care. Still be saved. There will be shame in that moment. And the rewards will be lost because of improper building on the matchless foundation of Christ. Now, let's address the difficult portion of the passage. Let's be clear. The scriptures teach and promise eternal, eternal rewards for work in this life that survives the coming test of our building, our discipling. That's what Paul is teaching us here. It's not salvation as the reward, not salvation according to works, not salvation by works, but rewards according to the works. Every Christian will get to heaven, but not every Christian will have the same reward in heaven. And there are different ways in which we may think of this, different ways in which we may think of these rewards. Scripture mentions crowns in heaven that we will lay down at our Lord's feet. It talks about our master saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. But I think that this has something more to do with what Paul has already mentioned in a previous passage than those sorts of rewards. If you look back at verse 8 in this chapter, he says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Remember that these two metaphors are by and large teaching the same thing. And in our first metaphor, Paul says that those who work to grow the field, those who disciple and teach other Christians, will receive a wage for his labor. According to this metaphor that we're reading this morning, some of that labor could be burned up. And that which isn't burned up, then, is actually the reward. But it's in the context of growing the church. And also, remember, these works will manifest on the day. The if In your Bible, that word day is probably capitalized because it's meaning a specific day. It's meaning this day of judgment, the last day, Christ's return. So then, what I think Paul is speaking of here when he mentions rewards is nothing less, and this is a huge reward, is nothing less... Than the joy that we will have of seeing those that we've taught rightly in heaven in glory with us. Look over to, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay? Turn me to 1 Thessalonians 2. It's verse 19 and 20 in chapter 2. He says, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? So speaking of the same day. Is it not you for you are our glory and our joy. Isn't that lovely church? Don't you want to see each other and know each other for eternity? Don't you desire to see others resting in Christ and to know that by the grace of God, God used you to accomplish his goal of calling and sanctifying other saints? What a what a great reward that is. What a great reward that is. Pursue this. It matters. Be building into someone. Take your relationship, take your faith seriously. It matters. And make no mistake, if you neglect doctrine in your life, your reward will be less. So take your work in the church serious, friends. And then lastly, the third consequence of improper building is a somber warning. And there is a danger that your doctrine can become so contrary to the foundation that we destroy the very church which we serve and ourselves along with it. So verses 16 and 17, back in chapter 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is a dreadful thing, and it's not hypothetical. It happens all the time in one place or another, and this isn't about avoiding cigarettes or alcohol or something like that. It's not about suicide either. We can look to other places in Scripture about having a a right understanding of how we should treat our physical bodies, but it's not here. We are dealing with spiritual matters and the doctrines that impact our spiritual lives. The 26th chapter of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is on the church, says this. He says, The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. So in other words, there's no perfect churches, right? Every church is going to have something wrong with it. Some have degenerated so much so that they have ceased to be churches of Christ and have become synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ always has had and will have in this world to the very end a kingdom of those who believe in him and profess his name. You see, if you are giving yourself to the pursuit of division and worldly wisdom until you destroy the church of Jesus Christ, you show that you're not building on the foundation of Christ at all. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Your divisiveness, your adherence to human and worldly wisdom, all driven by pride, reveal a heart that does not know Christ's saving touch. And if you are the one who destroys the church, you will face the destruction of the Lord. God is holy. His church, then, is holy. His temple is holy. And he will destroy the one who destroys the temple. It's a somber warning a sober warning and it's challenging for us in our day as so many think so little of the church. They come to church with a consumer attitude, but that's not of how how God thinks of his church. And then if that's how you think of the church, right now is the time to repent. If church is just something that you are coming to get what you want out of it, consider the foundation that you're being that you're building on. Because if you're here playing games, you see now I hope that this life of the church is not a game to the Lord. He doesn't see it that way. So Paul says to be sure that you have the right foundation. You've laid the correct foundation. There's only one that can bear the weight of your life and time for eternity. That foundation, that is Jesus Christ. Are you resting on him? Are you resting on him? Then he says, be careful how you build. Be careful how you build onto that foundation. There's only one life that will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then he says, let's be careful not to destroy the unity and the doctrine of the church. Those who do show that they're not building on the right foundation at all. And those who destroy God's temple, God himself will destroy. May the Lord give us grace as we search our hearts in light of his word to be sure that we are resting on the one true foundation, building in such a way that our labors will last to the glory of God and that we avoid any possibility of destroying God's temple. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are holy. We are grateful that we have been given the spirit of adoption, that we can approach your throne with boldness to receive grace, to find mercy in times of need. And so we ask, Lord, that you would set our hearts to your word, that you would help us to consider how it is that we are building, but even before that, that you would help us to consider that we are building upon the right foundation. We know, Lord, that there is none other than Christ who can justify us. And so we are glad that our assurance rests in him and his perfect and holy work. And so help us then to have sound doctrine. Give us a greater and an increasing desire to know your word, to study your word. Help us to be discerning that we may not build in such a way that it will be burnt up. Please be gracious to us, be merciful to us all for Christ's sake. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.